Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. This time, we are going to talk about the Beatles at Christmas. And this is going to be part one of a two-part episode. And how we're going to do this is we're going to look at every Christmas in the 1960s, from 1960 to 69, and look at a little snapshot of how the Beatles were at each Christmas to kind of have a look at how their career progressed across the the decade. What we're going to do is we're going to wind back to the pre-fame days, and we're going to go back to uh, December 1960. And uh, we're going to start right there and see what the Beatles were up to. And the, the interesting thing about 1960 is that's the year where they first go to Hamburg mm-hmm. and they you know this is the year where they become like the hot live band so you know in May of 1960 they go off on tour with Johnny Gentle then in August they get the opportunity very quickly to go to Hamburg so they hire up Pete Best they go off to Hamburg and they're in Hamburg from 17th of August till the end of November 1960 and so when we get to December 1960 we're in the post flush of their first round at Hamburg and yet, and, and Lewis describes this very well in his book, there's kind of a, almost an air of despondency. Like they, they think that that was the pinnacle, that that's it, that it's over. Yeah, I think by, by the end of December, um, there is this real sense of uh, a pivotal moment. Are they going to continue? Um, will they be able to uh, pick up after coming back from Hamburg? Or is this really effectively the end of the band? Um, and um, it's a very interesting period in that immediate run up to December. Mm. And you can see that, that that really is the key, the key point. Yeah, where they have to make a decision about what they're going to do. They have to make a decision. And really, I think it's Lennon has to make the decision. Yes. And it's, you know, you know, the, 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 the way they left Hamburg is, is pretty well documented that George gets deported on the 21st of November 1960. Then Paul and Pete get deported on the 30th of November 1960. And then John ends up returning on his own. But he doesn't return on his own till the 10th of December 1960. Yeah. And Stuart Sutcliffe at that point kind of leaves the band. He stays he's, behind with Astrid. He, he, is, he is basically out of the band at that stage. He's with Astrid. He's staying in Germany. Uh, George, uh, by way of background, he's deported simply for being underage. Yeah. Um, what had happened at this point was um, they were told at the beginning of uh, November that their contract with the Kaiser Keller Club, that uh, Bruno Koschmeider had said, that's it, I'm terminating mm-hmm. the contract. They were preparing to move across to the top ten club, which was uh, Peter Eckhorn. The manager there had uh, offered them a contract. George was gone. And um, uh, Mark Lewison, uh, in his book, describes George teaching um, John 
the, the lead guitar parts sort of so that they could carry on. So there doesn't seem to be any sense at that point that even though George was leaving, you know, that wasn't the, the rest of the band were staying. And so do we know how long, you know, if all that stuff hadn't happened, do we know how long they were planning to stay? Were they planning to stay into 61? My understanding is there was they, they were due to stay on into 61, mm-hmm. but um, they, they say they left. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the Kaiser Keller Koschmeider, I think, in fact, had terminated the contract. Um, and I think this uh, the, it was an increasingly sort of fractious relationship. And I think what predates that termination of the contract is uh, th- this story about breaking up the stage mm-hmm. in the Kaiser Keller where Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, the Beatles, other people performing, got it into their head that this would be hilariously funny if they if they stomped so hard on the stage uh, that they would smash up the stage. And uh, I think it was effectively Rory Storm that uh, succeeded one night in, in breaking the stage. Right. Um, but basically, I think uh, Koschmeider had decided he'd had enough of these yeah. kind of rock and roll uh, uh, layabouts, lights. Um, he had terminated the contract and they were moving to the top ten. Yes. And, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, you know, how... In retrospect, it, it might only seem like a week or two that separates mm. um, Paul and Pete going back and then John going back. But obviously at the time, when there's no kind of mass communications or they're not able to keep in touch, nobody really knows what's going on. So when Paul and Pete Best come back to Liverpool, there's no real knowledge about when John is going to reappear. And John, he makes a very lonely trip back to Liverpool and he kind of realises for all the months in Hamburg, there's no money, he's exhausted, yeah. he's... His, you know, that's the first time they've ever given their nervous systems to use the George speak, yeah. and uh, they kind of have a, a post Hamburg PTSD almost, where they 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 they're kind of shook to their core from that. Yeah, whole thing. I think what, what what you have to bear in mind is that they that each of them uh, went to Hamburg against the wishes or against the judgment of their parents, or in John's case, his his aunt. So yeah. they were all they left full of this this. Um, sort of enthusiasm and this ambition and, uh, you know, they're going to make their money, they make their living doing this, there was money to be had, and each of them is sort of slinking back under very ignominious circumstances. So so George makes that kind of lonely trip back um, through London and then up to uh, carrying a lot of gear and and needing porters at the station to get this home. And he says, literally, he, he arrived home, he was flat broke, he had used any money he had uh, he had spent getting a home. Yes. Uh, uh, Pete and Paul were deported, so they're like they, they are literally taken to the airport and seen off and seen off by yeah. the German, the German police. Um, I think Peter Eckhorn, the top ten manager, had to foot the bill for at least part of their their trip home. But they left without their their equipment. Yeah. Um, then John comes home and he gives an interview much much later, describing how he kind of came home with his amp on his back literally this is an amp that he hadn't paid for he was petrified it was going to get stolen he arrives back and he's kind of knocking on the door of his aunt's yeah you know destitute Here this I hasn't am. worked and he gets home on about the 10th of december and he doesn't contact paul until around the 15th of december is what we know yeah. uh which is so he's, he's at home sitting on his own stewing for five days you know it's in the fortnight before christmas and what i like about this story is that 
Even though it's only about two and a half weeks since Paul has been kicked out of Hamburg, he's managed to get himself a job. Yeah. And this is one of these things that looms large in the McCartney legend. You know, well, I had a job for a while and I went off <laughs> and I was and he writes songs about being on the bus and all that stuff. But like when you look at it in, in the timeline, it's like, oh, he had a job for like two weeks or so. Yeah. And eventually Lennon reaches out to Paul, rocks up and says, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. And uh, they very quickly make a decision then that they 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 play a, their first post-Hamburg show, uh, which seems to be a casual type of thing with uh, in Mona Best's Casbah Club on the 17th of December. Yeah. So I'll say, yes, it's, 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 uh, I think it's an accidental meeting initially that George bumps into to, to John and then Paul describes them, the two of them coming around and saying, right, uh, and he's thinking, well, I've got a job. Yeah. Should I, you know, I'm, I'm So we have him in the anthology here. One day John and George showed up in the yard and I should have been sweeping it and they told me we'd a gig. Uh, and I said, no, I have a steady job here and it pays seven pounds and 14 shillings a week and I'm getting training. And uh, then he, he said, sod it. And he bunked over the wall and... Massey and Coggins' loss <laughs> was the pop world's gain. Uh, yes, in retrospect. I think in retrospect we can <laughs> say that. That's fair enough. So, uh, yeah, John describes uh, George being angry mm-hmm. whenever he realises Lennon's been home for a few days because he he's thinking, touch, you know, yeah. we, you haven't been in touch. We could have been gigging. We could have been earning money but I think you, it, it's an indication of the sort of the depth of the despondency that Lennon is really uh, this is the crunch time what are they going to do is this going to be a career is this going to be a hobby or do they just kick it to the side of the road but it's obvious when they hit the stage on the Casbah on the 17th of December that they are not the same band that last played Liverpool in yes. the middle of the summer that they are a different kind of there's been a transformative change and so again very very quickly a number of gigs just appear in that Christmas period on either side of Christmas Day, which are kind of pivotal in how the Beatles went from being, you know, knocking around Liverpool, having a laugh, to becoming a, a band with the potential to be a professional operation. Yes, and I mean, the Casbah gig on the 17th, what, what you've got to realise is, you know, they didn't they didn't have their bass player. He'd stayed back in, in Germany. They didn't have equipment. Yeah. So they had to borrow equipment from another band um, in order to, to actually put... Uh, that uh, gig on they got uh, Chaz Newby who was in another band um, uh, a guitar player to play bass mm-hmm. uh, so it's a very uh, sort of ramshackle uh, outfit in, in that sense but clearly there's something different Yes um, and on the back of that gig on the 17th Alan Williams uh, their de facto manager at the time on the 19th of December books them a gig for the 24th Fourth for Christmas Eve, yeah. So it's all happening quite quickly, and that's at the Grosvenor Volume, uh, the Grosvenor Ballroom in Liscard Wallasey, um, and uh, they had played there uh, before, um, but now you know these gigs that they play across Christmas. So I'm just looking at the list here. They play uh, Litherland Town Hall on the 27th, which was a welcome home gig booked by Bob Wooler. Another gig on the 31st of December, and it seems to be that Litherland, Litherland Town Hall gig on the 27th of December is an explosive, pivotal. People who were there kind of say this was a, a, a magnificent. Yes, change. So this 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 seems to be uh, what crystallised uh, the decision. We're going to stick with this. Uh, Lennon in in the anthology. Uh, uh, there's an interview from 1967 that was shown in anthology, and he said that was the evening we really came out of our shell and let go. We stood up there and we were being cheered for the first time. This is the, this is when we began to think that we were good. Up to Hamburg, we thought we were okay, but not good enough. And uh, so this is the point where suddenly uh, 
from the depths of despondency, they suddenly get this massive uh, boost. Yes, um, by this uh, by by this one single gig, and it says uh, Pete Bestor says you know they played to about fifteen. Uh, hundred people uh, on the dance floor at the time um, but to quote Pete they stopped dancing when we played and they surged forward in a crowd to be nearer to us to watch every moment and above all to scream which is kind of a just that's not how gigs were at that no, time it's I how gigs are now yes. where people go to the yeah. front and stare I think this and is shout. the thing the, these were dances yes previously yeah so this seems to mark you know I suppose maybe you say this is the, this is the beginning of the modern rock mm. gig I mean up to this point it was a band played for a dance and they were playing for the purposes of the dance you yeah. weren't going for the band you weren't themselves. going to see a concert you yes. were going to a dance at which there was a live band providing uh, uh, the entertainment so it's the force of their personality their talent their ability that people are paying more attention to them than the, yeah. the function of dancing and then they end uh, 1960 by playing another gig at the Casbah Club so it's an interesting Christmas 1960 from one side of Christmas Day they're almost on the verge of collapse and then on the other side of Christmas Day yeah they realise what they've done yes and Lewison makes the point that this is really where they cemented uh, their local following. Yes. So you, you had then people were coming to follow the band at yes. this point. So it wasn't just, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an event or there's a dance and the Beatles are playing. People were then following the band. And this is the start of that sort of dedicated, loyal, uh, local uh, following. Yeah, they, they they basically just make a name in Liverpool across Christmas 1960. Yeah. And then they become like... And, and this is this is this is when the local promoters yes. suddenly latch on to this. And the Beatles had been a little bit um, sort of suspect, you know. They were a little bit unreliable. Um, there had been sort of problems at, with them sort of uh, turning up or not turning up, or uh, uh, maybe fights at that. But this is the point at which uh, the, the local promoters suddenly realise there's, there's money to be made. Yes. Um, okay, so that's 1960. Pretty pivotal. Pretty pivotal. They they they're still pre any kind of national fame. They're still far away from a, a record contract. Let's skip forward twelve months to 1961 because in 1961 they had gigged a lot. Yeah. And you kind of look at the the numbers. They played 36 gigs in February 1961 alone. They'd done three months in Hamburg, playing up to eight hours per night for about 92 nights in a row. They became fully involved in the Cavern Club gigs. And by the end of 1961, in November 1961, obviously, very important thing, on the 9th of November, Brian Epstein sees them for the first time and starts the process of trying to become their manager. So a load of things happen in December 1961 that uh, that sets them up for, for 1962. Um, so where would you start? I suppose, you know, in, in December 1961, they start playing, they played the, kind of their first gig outside of Liverpool. They go down to the south of England. Yes, uh, so this was th- th- this was in Aldershot mm-hmm. uh, at the Palais Ballroom, and this was a, a, a local Liverpool promoter, Sam Leach, who decided um, uh, if we can't get A and R men to come to Liverpool, uh, then we will go to them. And for some reason, he seems to think that Aldershot is London. Right. So um, you know, Aldershot is what sort of thirty-five miles outside. London, uh, this is the early 60s. It's not the most uh, easily accessible. Um, But his idea was he was going to book them for five consecutive Saturday nights at the Palais Ballroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was going to be a showcase that was really going to put them on the map um, with A&R and record companies. And um, it was billed as uh, 
Liverpool versus London Battle of the Bands. You had the, the, the Beatles and you had a, a, a London group called Ivor J and the Jaywalkers. Oh, yes. And, uh, Where are we, they now? Where are they now? <laughs> um, so so this, 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 this was the big event that was going to break them. Um, and for one reason or another, it just didn't happen. Not right. least of which... Aldershot, not London. It's not, yeah, it's not really the, uh, well, I'd, I've never been to Aldershot, but it's not. I've been to Aldershot. Have you? Yeah, and? yeah, yeah. It's, it's an army town. Ah, okay. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's a kind of army town, but uh, it's very nice, you know, all, all our okay. people living Shout in Aldershot. Aldershot, Aldershot it's, it's, uh, <laughs> not, I just, uh, the streets are not filled with roaming uh, record company A&R men. I think that's That is true. That's well known. Uh, well known. Aldershot thing. known for that. Um, um, but, but Leach, uh, Two, two issues apart from the geographical inconvenience. Um, it wasn't advertised anywhere. Right. So he claimed to have sent an advert to the local, you know, the Aldershot News. Um, but the, for some reason, the ad didn't didn't run. Yes. Um, I, I think the the uh, there was some background story about, you know, the, the paper only accepted cash for first time advertisers or some some such. But for whatever reason, um, it, the gig was just not advertised. So uh, it it I think that the head count was 18 people turned wow. up. Well, what's interesting about this this kind of December 1961 period is Epstein's just appeared on the scene and he he's doing a lot of work for them to kind of prove his bona fides, but he hasn't signed them to any contract no, yet. No, no, still he, he's, he's really working on SPAC. It's, it's on trust at this stage. Yes, and, and in some ways he's trying to prove himself and there's probably you know, a bit of... Um, you know, the Beatles are expecting him to kind of deliver something. Uh, and then on Wednesday, the 13th of December, uh, you know, they're playing their gigs in, in the, the Cavern Club. They're doing their 64th lunchtime gig of 1961 in the Cavern Club. And again, through Epstein, uh, there's an A&R man there to see the Beatles for the first yes. time. Uh, Mike Smith from DACA, he comes to the uh, to the evening show um, because uh, Epstein via Tony Barrow, who, who was Liverpudlian, press uh, guy uh, but working in London had had put him in touch and it's you know this is the series of events that leads to the DECA audition yeah. so that gets put in the diary for the 1st of January 1962 as a result of them being seen on the on the 13th of December in, in the cavern but then Christmas week again Epstein working on spec uh, he organises the band's first ever photo session and he finally also puts together a management contract to get them to, to have a look at it and also Christmas week they're playing the cavern every day so it's full tilt uh, for the Beatles they're, yes they're I mean I think this is Epstein stepping up uh, into the role of what or what he perceives to be the role of a manager you know he's never done this before yeah. um, the Beatles I think are probably more impressed by his his car and his clothes and his manner yeah um, he has no managerial experience but um, he is sort of feeling his way into the role um, and uh, as you say they get uh, I think I have a name somewhere. Uh, Albert Marion did the first uh, photos. Did the first photos. He's a wedding photographer, <laughs> and um, I think he he takes uh, sixteen, seventeen photographs, and that's the official uh, first publicity shots. But it's a perfectly kind of Brian Epstein thing because you can't really imagine the Beatles themselves arranging their own no. photographs or understanding what it means. Whereas you know, it's a perfectly normal managerial process to say, okay, we're going to get some photos, get them done, we'll send these out, get you known. 
and start to get them suited and booted up. You know? Yes, I mean, this is this is the start of him uh, sort of bringing them more into the mainstream. Yes. Uh, as you say, cleaning them up, putting putting them uh, into suits, etc. And so a draft contract is put towards them, but they don't fi- finally sign with Brian until January 62. But 19, December, Christmas 1961 is the last Christmas they are without a record contract. Yeah. And that is obviously the number one thing that uh, Brian Epstein wants them to get. And he's putting a lot of trust in... Um, Decca hopefully wanted to accept the Beatles uh, after the 1st of January audition but we know that, that that doesn't turn out to be the case do you know what songs were number one for Christmas 1961 by any chance I don't know but I'm sure you have a list I do have a list in uh, the UK the number one Christmas single was Moon River by Andy Williams and in the US it was The Lion Sleeps Tonight by The Tokens so they are two respectable songs but very much a pre beatle yeah. era that you know all this is going on Christmas 1961 and um you know, we don't know what's about, what's to, about happen. to happen. <laughs> so then you skip forward to Christmas 1962. And by Christmas 1962, we are in a totally different space again. Yes. So by Christmas 1962, they have a record contract. They have put out a debut single, mm-hmm. um, Love Me Do, obviously, uh, through Parlophone. And what they've also done in that year is they've signed up to Epstein and they are working. They are a proper gigging uh, band and uh, you know they tour they start touring all around the country in 1962 um, so they make their first television appearances towards the end of 1962 yes yeah, so this is sort of early December um, they're, they're, they're promoting uh, Love Me Do um, 3rd of December they go to Bristol uh, for a television show called Discs A Go Go I would like to see that <laughs> uh, show um, and this is this was a weekly pop music uh, show that was broadcast live. So I, I don't think there's a there's a tape or recording of that. Um, it's their only appearance on the show, and they mime okay. uh, to love me do. So you think of miming as being a a modern. Uh Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Phenomenon, phenomenon. But uh they're they're miming uh to love me do. The next day, on the fourth to Tuesday, they're on a kids show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see how, how, how this, 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 this persists, this type of uh, <laughs> uh, publicity persists all the way through to today. Um, so uh, th- this time it's, it's, it's television in the London area. And again, they're miming to Love Me Do and uh, uh, part of a miming section to P.S. I Love You uh, as well. And so what is interesting, though, about the end of 62 is that um, for actual Christmas 1962, they do end up going back to Hamburg. Now, it's in a slightly different 
situation to when they've been in Hamburg before. It's a short residency for two weeks. Yeah. Slightly better pay, slightly better circumstances. But it really is one of the few instances in you know, the Beatles chronology where you kind of think that's a bit regressive. You don't really need to go to Hamburg I, at this I th- point. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, this was something that had been arranged, uh, contracted before uh, sort of the single and the touring in the UK started to take take off. Um, I think the Beatles weren't particularly happy about going. But again, Epstein contract is a contract. You've got to see this out. And of course, uh, they're, they're back in Hamburg this time with uh, Ringo. The first and only time they're in Hamburg with yeah. Ringo, so to to it's something old and something new at the same time, you know. And uh, I mean, th- one of the things that had happened uh, by this point is they're scoping out what are they going to do for an album. So George mm-hmm. Martin has been to see them uh, in the cavern and, and decided that this is not on a this is not going to happen. This is not an appropriate uh, venue. Um, but then, as you say, they 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 fly back uh, to Hamburg on the eighteenth. Yes, and uh, it's their final residency at the uh, the Star Club, and uh, they were contracted to play for thirteen nights uh, from the eighteenth to thirty first December with a break for Christmas Day, and they stayed uh, they stayed at a hotel this time called the Hotel uh, Pacific, and on December the twenty fifth itself, which was a Tuesday in nineteen sixty two, it's their only day off in Hamburg, and not they're not really living the VIP lifestyle yet. They go off to the Siemens Mission, the British <laughs> Siemens Mission in Hamburg, and uh, which was known as a place where you could get warm food and a bit of heat and a drink and it seems it seems very strange that that you know this is a band with a record in the charts Christmas Day yeah you wouldn't you know yes and um, they had Christmas lunch with another band called the Dominoes and apparently they ate horse yeah very tasty too oh my lord so uh, but it's again it's uh, it's it's a different Christmas to the previous Christmases and uh, you know they finish in Hamburg and then they fly back uh, to start 1963 back in the UK. Another tour. Another tour. So let's go forward then to Christmas and December 1963 because this is a massive sea change and this is Beatlemania. Yeah. Beatlemania is now fully in swing for, for Christmas uh, 1963. We have, let's talk about the first Beatles Christmas record because this is the first time they now have a fan base. Yes. And so, you know, something that's kind of popped up in the last few years is that the Beatles Christmas records have kind of come back into the popular consciousness. So for people who don't know, the Beatles Christmas records were, what, just an annual fan club specific present? Yes, this was something um, I mentioned Tony Barrow, Mm. um, who was a sort of an associate of Epstein. So he's working as a press officer now, and he came up with the idea that uh, they should do something um, as a as a gift or a thank you to the fans. Yes. Um, because by this stage, you, you know, they have a massive fan club uh, in in the UK. Um, as you say, Beatlemania is is taking off. Yeah. Um, the Beatles were sort of okay. Yes, let's do that. But they left it to Tony Barrow yeah. to to script something. Yes. Um, and. Um, uh, on the 17th of October 1963 uh, they sit down in a studio with that script mm. um, they're just about to start work on I Want to Hold Your Hand so it gives you an idea of th- that that kind of tipping point again yes. it's the next 
big leap forward is just about to happen. And so we talked about I Want to Hold Your Hand yeah. on a separate episode. But yes, they're doing this. She Loves You is becoming almost the biggest selling history in, in, in biggest selling single in UK history. Um, they're trying to record I Want to Hold Your Hand. I Want to Hold Your Hand is going to be the Christmas number one for that year yeah. in the UK. Uh, and yeah, so they, they set up to do this fan club record. And I mean, it, 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 it's uh, so we're just about to get that single. We're just about to get the release of uh, With the Beatles. Yes. Um, the hysteria is 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 there yeah. uh, in their day to day lives. So their lives months have, of please please me. If yeah, their yeah. the lives have been turned inside out. And um, there, there's a nice article in Rolling Stone, and th- they talk about these records and this one in particular. And they say a genuine tone of naive bewilderment <laughs> pervades um, the recording. So it's a very straight uh, script. Yes. Where each of them in turn simply steps up to the microphone and goes, we just like to thank you. We mm-hmm. hope we pleased you. There's Tony Barrow working in little references to please, please me. And it's all very uh, traditional yes. showbiz. Yes. Um, you get little bits of, of the Beatles personality coming through and kind of undercutting this where John saying, you know, I'd like to re- personally respond to you all, but I don't have enough pens. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's but they're pretty... Um, it's pretty square. Pretty, it's pretty square. Is the, yeah. is, is the uh, is the word? But the thing I'm interested because you know uh, I think it's what two years ago, three years ago that the Beatles Christmas records were reissued as a very yes. nice box, and I, yeah. we just have it sitting in front of us here for 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 no particular reason. Um, <laughs> but it's it's I, I I'm not sure. Was this a common thing that was happening at the time? I, I, I like it seems to me in retrospect the Beatles fan club and how it interacted with people was very progressive for the mm-hmm. time. Yes, I think so. I, I, I'm not aware that anyone was doing this. Uh, I mean, I suppose the comparables would have been in an earlier era, people like Frank Sinatra or people like uh, Elvis. Um, but I think uh, I'm not aware of anyone doing this yes. uh, before. And these, these just for people that don't know, these were little one track. Uh, flexi, one-sided flexi one-sided flexi discs yes. um, and uh, you know the sort of thing that if you played them half a dozen times they would start to to deteriorate in, yeah. in, in, in quality and they certainly weren't the type of thing that they expected back in October 1963 to be poured over many many years later no, by no. men I mean, in a recording studio trying to say, figure out sitting, what it's all about you're sitting there with the box set yeah. and uh, that that, that you know, these are being sort of polished up and cleaned up, and it's it, it, it's a it's a very nice thing to have. But uh, I, I find myself thinking, you know, where are the outtakes? <laughs> where are the because uh, Tony Barrow, um, the press officer, was basically given the master tape. Yes. And oh he, yeah. He did the editing for the first one, and he said literally he sat with scissors. Yeah. And chopped up the master tape and stuck it together, and he said all of the little outtakes and snippets just lay on the studio floor and were swept up. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, the, the, on the basis that anything the Beatles said or did is now worthy of yes. me paying money for it. <laughs> uh, um, well, the first the first uh, flexi came in a little sleeve, and the back of the sleeve has pictures of the Beatles with the fan club joint secretaries of the time, Bettina Rose and Anne Collingham, and also a lovely picture of the Beatles meeting the Queen Mother. On oh, the back, quite nice. Is, yeah, the the, fla- the fan club secretaries and uh, fr- uh, Frida, Frida Kelly, good old Frida, good old Frida. They they uh, they get a shout. Out. They do. And um, one of the things that's that's interesting is uh, Paul in his little section. And again, how much this is him and how much is Tony Barrow? Uh, uh, he says, you know, people ask us, you know, what do you like best? You know, do you like playing live or what, what, what aspect? And he said, the thing we like best is being in the studio and making. Records, Yes. So it's interesting whether that's a scripted line or whether that's Paul sort of saying, well, actually, you know, 
we, we, we much prefer seeing this come together um, in the studio. That, that's the way they're heading. You know, it's maybe early to say, well, he's, he's looking ahead three years to the tour and getting yeah. tiresome. The other thing I, I, I think is interesting, he says, what we like to hear most is one of our songs taking shape in a recording studio, one of the ones that John and I have written. Right. Very pointed so, there. Very pointed, uh, given that uh, it was a month earlier they'd recorded George's first song. I'm just doing the Team George. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's for this week. It, it wouldn't be an episode <laughs> if I didn't. Didn't uh, big up George. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so by 63, it's Beatlemania, Christmas number ones. Uh, there's all the stuff we talked about in previous episodes going on in the background about prepping them up for the US of A. So their single comes out in the US on the 26th of December 1963. But the other big thing that they do across Christmas and which we might think is quaint, but when you look at it, it's, it's quite smart, is the Beatles Christmas show at Finsbury Park, yes. uh, Astoria, which is a, a way of, I guess, trying to meet demand for tickets from, on behalf of Brian Epstein, really. I think so. So that you, you've got that, I suppose, this notion of a, some, uh, like a residency yeah. uh, that they're going to do. They sell 100,000 uh, tickets, tickets yeah. which is just Crazy. Yeah, number. I didn't realise it was that many. If you add up all the different shows and, and uh, that they played that Christmas yeah. and all the tickets sold, 100,000. So you'd think now you wouldn't blink an eye of yeah. a big band selling 100,000 yes. tickets two or three nights in a stadium or whatnot. Yeah. But how did you do that in 1963? You just did a residency like You this. just did a residency. And yeah. it, 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 it's, it's a peculiar mix of... You know, songs and sketches and, and uh, you know, you could see this is, this is a throwback to the kind of old Mr. Showbiz style uh, yeah. entertainment, you know, the, the kind of thing that the mums and dads would be going to see, you know, Vic Parnell at the London Palladium and that, that type of thing. So it's, it's a slightly uneasy mix of, of um, bands and sketches and, 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 and a sort of pantomime. Yes, well, obviously the um, British tradition of pantomime yeah. is where people would be spending their box office money at Christmas time. You know, so, but you, you've got... Scylla Black, the Baron Knights, yeah, Rolf Harris. Let's not. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I don't know where the Finsbury Astoria is. I haven't. I've never been to the Finsbury. Well, Astoria. I have been to the Finsbury. Well, here's an interesting thing because uh, is it still there? I mentioned it is still there. Uh, I, uh, so many years ago, I lived in London and I lived in the North London area. And I used to get a bus past this very spectacular building and I didn't really, for all intents and purposes, it was a church. It was one of these kind of modern Christian churches. And uh, I was flicking through a Beatles book one day and I saw a picture and I realised that that building was the Finsbury Park Astoria, Astoria. which later became the Rainbow. So the building still exists, um, but it's now a a church, but it's still an auditorium. And uh, I managed to get in and look around the foyer and all the rest, but I couldn't get into the auditorium on the day. They were very nice. They were very understanding. (laughs) And I knocked on the door and said, can I have a look around, please? Uh, But there's pictures of the auditorium and it's it's still there. I think they're called the UKCG Church or something like that. And the deal that was made was it was a venue up until the early 1980s. And uh, there was some group who wanted to open a venue and it was between the, they had a deal with this church and they swapped venues and uh, it was the Brixton Academy that the church gave to the promotions venue and they gave the church uh, the old Finsbury Park Rainbow. I didn't know that the the Astoria was the Rainbow. The Astoria is the Rainbow. Every day is a school day. So it's all the same uh, building. So there is recordings from inside. There's a very celebrated Kinks gig that was filmed inside the Rainbow in the 70s. Uh, If you want to get an idea of what that uh, arena was like. On Christmas Day itself, 1963, they were not working and as a step up from the previous year uh, eating horse at the Seaman's Mission, they get a (laughs) private plane up to Liverpool um, to uh, spend time with their family. 
for the day. For the day. And then back to London the next back day. Back to London so to no do shows. Off, uh, really. Yes, and it cost £400 to charter a private plane to Liverpool uh, for Christmas Day 1963, which is eight grand in today's money, which that's if you're selling 100,000 tickets, that's... Yeah, that's uh, probably a, worth a, worthwhile. A drop in the ocean. So when they're standing... Uh, in Liverpool on Christmas Day 1963 they must be thinking well where can we go next and the following day their single comes out in the US and as we know that becomes quite popular well that's I want to hold your hand I want to hold your hand that's again it's it's again that next step and the number uh, just as a side point the song that was number one in the USA for Christmas 1963 was Dominique by the Singing Nun so talk about a new broom coming in to to clean that out. Yes, I think we touched on that and the uh, whenever we talked about the single and the other statistic was it was selling uh 10,000 copies an hour in Gosh, New York there within you go. a few days. So let's skip into Christmas 1964 and by the end of 1964 they're not just a Liverpool phenomenon or a UK phenomenon or a Europe they are a worldwide phenomenon. They are yeah. the biggest uh pop culture rock music sensation that the world has ever known at that point and uh, they're kind of in uncharted waters by the time you get to Christmas 64 how do you get this big where do you go next well, yes I think that's the point uh, this, this had never been done on this scale mm. before you know you, you'd had the kind of Sinatra you'd, you'd had Elvis but but nothing uh, sort of as global as this yes um, and so what they actually end up doing is they do another run of Christmas shows at the Hammersmith Odeon so they do uh, I think two shows a day which run until the 16th of January so they're back doing what's called literally another Beatles Christmas show and uh, you know you could argue is it a bit parochial to be going back to doing this but again how do you sell that many tickets how do you meet demand what do you do I think this is the thing the other thing to, 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 to bear in mind to put it in context is this is England mm. in in the early sixties. Yes. So the the the, the template uh, for sort of showbiz, and this, that that's really what we're talking about is showbiz. Yes. Uh, for success, is this kind of uh, you know variety show, the Palladium? Mm-hmm. That's that's the, the template for for how you actually work this. The fact that the Beatles had had sort of. Comp- Completely outgrown yes. this, and I think you're right. I think I think this is them being sort of shoehorned into something, in, into a format uh, that they w- they weren't happy with this. Yes, um, I think they they again it was sort of music, other bands. Um, it, again, you have these, the, you know, the the Mike Cotton sound. You have Freddie and the Dreamers. Interesting, you have the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, there's that there's that kind of slightly harder edge, and uh, following on from the the Rolf Harris theme, uh, this year's compare is Jimmy Savile. Oh Jesus! So um, anyway, um, so they have they have, and again, they're being made to do these little skits and sketches yeah. and things like that. And I think they they pretty much say that's it. We're you know we're not doing that well, again. Well, people are trying to figure this out. I mean, they still yeah. haven't done Shea Stadium in the US, no. so stadiums haven't come onto the agenda yet. And, you know, bands doing, I know the Empire Pool start, you know, starts to become a place where gigs are mm. done and enemy shows and all the rest, but that hasn't become like a standard go-to place for people to to play. So they're still trying to negotiate how do you be big? You know, what, what do you do for the, these kind of things? Uh, and so by Christmas 1964, there's what's called Another Beatles Christmas Record is given out to the fans which we have there and that's a bit looser it's a bit more 
I mean, listen, they're kings of the world at that point. They can kind of say what they want, can't they? It is, it is. And interestingly, Barrow, Tony Barrow, in, in, in his, uh, you know, everyone, everyone's written a book. His book is John Paul, George Ringo and Me. Um, he, he says the, <laughs> <Modest>. Beatles, <laughs> the Beatles approached him saying, oh, when are we doing the Christmas right, record? Right. So, um, uh, so at this point, um, they obviously realised this. the Beatles are enjoying this. This is something that they had fun uh, doing, uh, he says, you know, he scripted something for them, but really they were using his words as a sort of security blanket that they were just going to go in, they were going to mess around, but they knew they had a, yes. uh, they they had a, they had a script. Yeah, and, and Tony Barrow writes some sleeve notes on the back, and it's a, you know a nice portrait of the Beatles on the front. It's still got that. Uh, that Beatles logo of the the curly script with the little antenna yes, on the yes, B that you don't that. No. that hasn't really lasted as long as the drop T Beatles logo, and uh, and George kind of looks a bit strange on the cover of that. He sort of has a Dave Clark type appearance. It does. It's, yeah, not, it's not the best picture of George, um, but uh, it's again a very important outreach to the fans. The songs that are number one at Christmas 1964, uh, it's basically the Beatles Christmas. I feel fine is number one in the UK and the the US. Uh, Beatles for sale. The album is. Uh, number one in the UK and uh, I Feel Fine goes number one all around the world Sweden, Norway, New Zealand, Netherlands, Canada and Ireland and the uh, number one US album for Christmas Day uh, Beach Boys Concert so not a total clean sweep not a total clean but, sweep uh, certainly a change this this Chris rac- Christmas record is the one that I think is is the least impressive It's yeah. they, all, they all sound tired they, they don't they, they, it sounds slightly forced um, and I suppose that ties in with the Beatles for Sale, that general notion. Well, there's a parallel that, universe where yeah. 64 is them running out of steam. Yes. And they were like, well, that was fun, wasn't it? Because Beatles for Sale doesn't necessarily tell us what's about to happen in 65, 66 and everything else. You know, it's covers and a bit. Of, it's not yeah. the best album. No, I know. Not, I know. You know no, it's, it's not. No, I think I, 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 I agree with you. There is that sense of of, of just it's all getting to be too much for them. The, the, yeah. the, the, the treadmill is moving too quickly and they, they don't have any time. This Christmas record is, is uh, part of the final session for the Beatles for Sale LP. So they are tired and you can you get a sense of a slight, uh, you know, they're jaded. Yes. I mean, at one point, you know, McCartney, who's always up and always on, and he says something, great you know, we're really great for the fans and we don't, know where we'd be without you and in the background Lennon says in the army <laughs> you know or Harrison says uh, oh the next film's going to be in colour and then it goes yeah it's going to be green you know so <laughs> uh, there's whereas they just they just seem a little bit uh, jaded I think yes and uh, in the US they give their first fan club a Christmas record but it's actually just an edit of the 1963 record so they haven't kind of matched uh, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic but when you kind of look at it uh, when you kind of look at it across those five Christmases from 1960 to 1964, you know, they've gone from, you know, returning from Hamburg destitute to being on top of the world at the end of 1964. Yeah. And you kind of think, well, where else is there to go? They can't go into space. And, and you know, what we'll talk about in part two is that the only way they can kind of go is to go inward. Yes. And that's exactly why we kind of get that tilt into the, the second part of the, uh, uh, the Beatles career. Um, but we're going to have to talk about that 
on next week's part two of the Beatles at Christmas. Um, uh, we would hope that you'll stay in touch with us in the usual places. Uh, subscribe to us on Twitter at BeatlesPod. If you go onto Facebook and look for the Nothing Is Real uh, Facebook group, you can join us there and join the conversation. Um, and we're going to put out part two in one week's time. So make sure you're all subscribed in all the usual places and all nice words and reviews that are left behind are appreciated. But uh, for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. We will see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad free content bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.